That was incredible, guys. You know, as when I heard we were doing that song, I was doing some research on it. And actually, the guy, the reverend who wrote this song, wrote it in the 1970s. So this isn't 100 years old. This isn't 200 years old. And the story goes like this. He's walking through his church one morning and notices this elderly African-American woman who is just weary, he said, to her bones. That's how she looked. He walked up to her and he said, how, how is it that you have been able to keep going on, dealing with what you've dealt with in this country and what you were raised in? And her words were, I'm in no ways tired because my hope is in Jesus. It reminds me of Psalms 37. It goes like this, for I was young and now I'm old. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken or God's people begging bread. So the question for us, in light of honoring this song, for us as a church, those watching online, is where are we finding our hope? We're looking at a world that is not yet as it should be. There's injustice and racism and people are ostracized and left behind. The world is not as it should be. And yet our calling is to be in no ways tired because God still has a plan and a purpose for our world and for humanity. Can we seal this moment in prayer that we're going to be a church that finds its hope in Jesus and continues the work that was done by the brave souls that have already come before us? Can you bow your heads and close your eyes and join us online as well? God, we thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for humanity. And though it can feel so bitter and so disappointing and so overwhelming and so exhausting to not be walking in that, not realizing that in its fullness yet, we are humbled that you use people who you've called us, followers of Jesus, to bring about that reconciliation. We are reconciling the world back to your original intent. God, we want to be people that even though we may be weary to our bones, we realize that you still have a future and a hope. You still have a plan and a purpose, and it is not over yet. The best days of humanity are still in front of us. The best days for our families and our cities and our states and our nation and the world is still in front of us. God, we declare that we are in no ways tired. And in that, we find our hope. And we thank you for that in your name. Amen. Amen. Man, worship team, that was incredible. Can we just celebrate that just one more time? That was so great. So uh, my name is Ed. I'm one of the pastors here. I get in the relationship series. I was really excited. I get to talk about everybody's favorite topic in relationship. Let's talk about boundaries today. Yeah? Talk about setting up some boundaries and holding the line. And, and, and I think as I was studying for this, that uh, we don't really have a full picture when we say boundaries. So I'm going to ask us to do just a little morning visualization. So uh, the ushers aren't going to come steal stuff, but what I'm going to ask you to do is close your eyes. You can close your eyes. We're not locking the doors. You can leave if it gets weird. It's okay. Um, if you're watching at home, if you could participate as well. 
And, you know, little secret, we see all of your guys' screens when we look into the back, so we know if you're not participating. Um, can you bow your heads and close your eyes just one more time? And, and this is what we're going to do. I'm just going to, I'm going to walk out a narrative. I'm just going to tell kind of a, a made-up story and give us some context of this idea for boundaries. And your only job is to live it out as if it's your life. Consider it as if it's your life, okay? So, let's say it's midweek, Wednesday morning, and the alarm is going off, and it's the annoying one that you set when you know you have to be up on time, right? And it is just squealing in your ear, and you sit up in a jolt and look at the clock and realize, man, I must have been subconsciously hitting snooze for about 45 minutes, and I'm 45 minutes late, and the reason that this is important is because you had a work project that you were supposed to have done before you showed up at the office this morning. And the plan was that you were going to do it the night before, but your high school student that you are so proud of and love so much came to you the night before and said, hey, mom and dad, um, my culminating project is due tomorrow, and I don't have it finished yet. And so... As a good, responsible parent, you stop everything you're doing as if your life wasn't continuing on as well, right? You stop everything you're doing, and you help them finish the project, burning the midnight oil, telling yourself, all right, I'll just have a quick turnaround, I'll get up early in the morning, and I'll finish this work project. But you didn't. Woke up too late. So you're rushing to work, disheveled, praying to God that your coffee, which is in one hand, does not spill and that the voice notes you're making on your phone so you can be ready for your presentation or catching, and you're thanking God for Seattle traffic. And so disheveled and hurried and frustrated, you walk in three minutes late to the meeting, muttering something about, you know, traffic. And psychologists have this thing called spotlight effect, where you believe that all eyes are on you, and they're thinking exactly what you're thinking in your head as you walk in, that happens. And you're thinking, man, everyone in the room thinks I'm disheveled, I'm not put together, I'm hurried, I'm rushing in late. So you sit down, heavy in your chair, and the meeting goes on. Thank God, for some reason, your report doesn't get called out. You make it through the meeting, and you take the time from there to lunch to get the report off. And finally, you get to go out for lunch, and for the sake of our mental health, let's envision the sun is out because we, we saw it for a minute yesterday, which was great. But let's believe the sun is out and you're walking through downtown Seattle, headed to your favorite little lunch spot to grab lunch and the phone rings and you look at the phone and you're overcome with frustration because it's that friend. We all have that friend that only calls when their life is falling apart. If you don't know who that is, you might be that friend, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Where life is falling apart, that's the only reason they call. And so you're faced in this moment, I do not want to talk to this person. But then you're overcome by Christian guilt, right? Which is, oh no, it's such an honor that they're calling me and I get to speak into their life. So you pick up the phone and sure enough, it's another string of bad dates that ended up surprisingly 
and blowing up in a bad, culminating in a really bad day, and they're never going to see each other again, and this time I'm deleting the app, and I'm never going back to it, and I really believe God has a plan and a purpose for my life, and I'm going to stand secure in that, and the whole time you're thinking in your head, dude, you're the common denominator. It's not the app's fault. It's you, right? But then you feel bad about it again, and so you're like, oh, no, 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 yeah, I got to engage with them and show Christ's love and mercy and grace, and then you realize it's really not that that's frustrating you. It's the fact that they never ask you how you're doing. That's really what's frustrating you. But of course you would never say that because that's selfish. Get to the end of the work day, you're driving home, and you know you have to have this conversation you've been dreading. And we can all put ourselves physically in that moment, the pit in the stomach, the tightness of the throat, the verge of the tears, even though they're not coming yet, it would feel better if you could just cry. So you and your spouse have not been doing good for years. And what started as an intimacy-filled marriage full of spice and excitement and love has turned into roommates who co-parent. And as you're driving home, you feel the weight of, I have to talk to them tonight. I don't know how much longer I can hold on. You get home and you throw food on the table and it feels good for a second. The family's together, maybe for the only time that week. You guys are eating. It feels good. You're looking around the table and you're like, this is a great moment. The phone rings. It's the kids pastor at your church. And they say, hey, uh, I know you told me you couldn't serve for a while because you need to focus on your family and your kids. But kids camp is two weeks away and our games manager just pulled out. And I know you've done it before, and I really need you, and the church needs you, and the kids need you. And you're thinking to yourself, I never would have told you I was struggling with my, friend, my family and my kids if you were going to manipulate me out of it. But then you feel guilty again. There's that good old Christian guilt. It really is an honor to build the church, and who's going to care for the children if I don't do it? So against wisdom and your better judgment, you say, yes, I'll be there at the next meeting. You hang up the phone and you look for your spouse and they're gone. You're not sure where they went. You get the kids off to bed and you finally find your spouse and they're asleep on the couch. At this point, you're just defeated. We all know that feeling, hopeless, tired. So you walk up to your home office and you open up the laptop and you start typing, working on another project and tears are starting to hit the keyboard as you find yourself asking the question, where's this victorious Christian life I was promised? Where's the exceedingly and abundantly beyond all I could ask, think, or imagine that I tell my friends about? Defeated, exhausted, close your laptop, begging and hoping that tomorrow's going to be a better day. Open your eyes. We're going to talk about boundaries today. We're not going to talk boundaries in the sense of so-and-so offended me, so I'm putting up a boundary. We're going to talk about this idea of biblical boundaries. And, and I want to give us a definition that gives us some context. So, so boundaries are my chance to walk in the fullness 
of my God-given wholeness. Boundaries are my chance to walk in the fullness of my God-given wholeness. It's the line that makes me, me, and you, you, and makes it obvious when I choose to engage you with love and mercy. We even have biblical proof of this, so go, go to Galatians 6 real quick. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer, them, if another believer, them, is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, me, should gently and humbly help them, that person, back into the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself, me. Verse 2. Share each other's burdens, and in this way obey the law of Christ. Verse 3. If you think you are too important to help someone, me, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Verse 4. Pay careful attention to your own work, me. Some translations will say, for each should manage their own load. For then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Verse 5, for we are each responsible for our own conduct, me. So this idea of loads versus burdens, loads, the idea is that it's like a backpack. Life comes with a load. We each are responsible for our own load. The idea of burden is carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. That's what we're called to help other people with. Notice it doesn't say, hey, go help them with their load. And don't put your load on others. It says burden, those catastrophic weight of the world type moments. That's what we're called to carry. And man, like boundaries are hard. I mean, I've been in therapy off and on for five years, and I'm still trying to figure this out. And I think it's my therapist's fault, not mine. But, I mean, if we're being honest, like, boundaries are hard for a world and a species, humans, that are genuinely pretty selfish. Like, given the option, most of the time, our default would be to do what is best for me, right? And we think because of that, boundaries would be easier. But if I can be transparent, I've been in this church world since I was super young. You sprinkle a little bit of Christian guilt and shame on what is already a problem. And like, oh man, that cocktail of guilt and shame is incredible. So we as believers are actually more primed to live boundaryless lives and relationships than people who aren't saved which is an interesting thought. See, because boundaryless relationships are the fruit of boundaryless lives. Boundaryless relationships are the fruit of boundaryless lives. And this is what we do as believers, is we spiritualize our lack of boundaries, don't we? We like sanctify, we dip them in the blood. You know, so... We, we would say boundaries are to go in place for bad things. Hey, so-and-so violated me in my relationship. I'm putting up a boundary. Or 
So-and-so is struggling with addiction. They need to put up a boundary. They need to start living a more honed-in life. What's interesting to me is addiction does not care if it's a good or bad thing. So really, what if we're spiritualizing good things that are causing us to live boundaryless lives? Let's put it this way. Any people pleasers in the room? My name is Ed Holmes, and I'm a recovering people pleaser. My people pleasing has hindered the quality of my life often. Definition of addiction. But because it was beneficial to my friends, my family, and my church, no one cared. So we dip our dysfunction and our boundaryless living in the blood of Jesus and call it sanctified. And why do we do it? Well, psychology would say we do it because there's a benefit. And you're like, no, absolutely not. I would never do that. Okay, let's go there. Sorry, here we go. We all put these lenses on. It's the way we see the world. It shapes how we interact, behave, and live within this world. And I'm going I'm to call it the lens of victimhood. See, boundaryless living allows us to put on the lens of victim. And there's benefits to it. The first one is this. I get to avoid all accountability. They, them, if they got their stuff together, my life would be better. Once they step up, I'll step up. So where's the accountability go? It goes out there. Them. They. Who. Them. Where. Anywhere. (laughs) Accountability exists outside of me, which feels so right in the moment, but in the long term removes me of all my power. I mean, think about it. This is the most hopeless way to live. That means that their behavior directly affects my quality of life. And I am destined to live that way. If their behavior affects my quality of life, and I don't have any accountability to change the quality of my life, then I am destined to a life of bitterness and frustration and anger. Because I have to wait for them to change. So, we put on this lens because we get to avoid accountability. And then second... It's a pretty safe place to live. I mean, think about it. I am accountability-free now. So I just get to coast into any situation and say, it's it's their problem. They need to get their stuff together. They need to step up. Sounds like a pretty good gig. No, 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 don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. It's not my problem. It's not my problem. If the world, the devil, man, don't we throw that out every now and then? The world, the devil, and I'm I'm realizing in my life a lot of times I call my poor decisions the devil, hoping it absolves me of accountability, right? Safe place to live. And then we get to save face because we have to keep writing a story about why we're giving away authority, right? Because we know deep down inside, no, I'm probably more responsible than I want to admit. So we don't have to take accountability, becomes a safe place to live. So then we start writing a narrative with everyone. Yeah, I, I would step up. I really would. I would pull my weight and I would have that conversation with them. But they've just been taking advantage of me for so long that I'm just not sure 
that if I had that conversation, it would be received. Well, can, you, can we pray about my dysfunction that's their problem? And, th- and this is the final benefit. We get to control through manipulation. So I've given up accountability, sitting pretty. It's a nice place to live. I get to save face. And now, because I'm entitled, because I've been bitter for so long, I start controlling through manipulation. Fine. I'll just leave then. Fine. I'm never talking to you again. The very thing that we claim they need to stop doing becomes the only way the two of us know how to communicate. So here's the scary thing. There's relationships in this room. This, just isn't, this isn't just a marriage thing. This is a family thing. This is a friend thing. This is a boss-employee thing. It's all over the place. There are relationships in this room, watching online, that there has been a lack of accountability for so long. It's gotten so comfortable that now my identity, because saving face, my identity is tied to my lack of accountability that, and manipulation is the only way we know how to communicate, that putting up boundaries and creating healthy relationship would actually feel dysfunctional. Because we've been in this cycle for so long. And I get to be right about it. Man, it feels so good to be so right about how wrong I'm being treated. So really, who's responsible for my boundaries? It's me. Which me, and this, this is a suffocating and in the moment demoralizing realization that my current subpar level of relationships in life was my decision. Because my boundaries are mine to enforce. It's my job to walk in the fullness of my God-given wholeness. And I'm an Enneagram one, anybody fan of the Enneagrams, which means that like any mean thing you've ever said to me, don't worry, I've said far worse to myself. And so when I came to this realization, working through it in therapy, man, I started beating the snot out of myself Realizing the first 20-something years of my life had been spent as a victim claiming that I wasn't one. But I found this meme that's kind of like brought brevity to it. I had my wife make a a version of it. Um, When you find out who's been in the way of my boundaries... And I have come now to realize this is the only place I find hope. Because again, if the quality of my life is dependent on someone else's behavior, I'm destined to a really bummer life. But if my boundaries are my responsibility, it's my job to walk in the fullness of my wholeness, then I have hope because that means I can restore my God-given wholeness. So let's get practical about what this looks like. And we're going to do, I'm going to speed through this, but we're, we're going to do a video in the midweek to talk about this at depth. So this is just a 30,000 foot view. 
How do we get back to restoring my wholeness? How do I restore boundaries? The first one is this. You need to forgive the person who offended you. Let me put it this way. Here's an even deeper way. You should go apologize. Ooh, yeah, man, like I'm all down for walking in my wholeness and my fullness, but you want me to go apologize to the person who's been violating my boundaries? Yeah, absolutely. Want to know why? Because that's a me issue, not a them issue. I have trained the people in my life that violate my boundaries that that's okay. That's a me issue. So the conversation looks like this. Hey, I wanted to let you know, I got to ask for forgiveness. I hold anger and animosity and frustration towards you that is not yours. It's mine. Because I have allowed you to believe that behaving this way towards me is okay. But I never clearly communicated that that wasn't. And so I want to apologize for my anger towards you, which is unwarranted and unfair. I don't like it either. And then we got to get flat. This is something Brittany and I use in our marriage. When I know that it's my job to hold up a boundary, to do good, to do something, and I don't do it, and someone violates my boundary, I know deep down inside that was my job to hold the line. And so I have to start writing a story, a narrative that allows me to not see that person in what's happening in real time in reality, but to see something that makes it okay that I'm not holding my boundary. So I start building a wall between me and them. So when I see them, I don't see them. I see the story I'm telling myself about the last thing that happened with them. And if we're going to move forward in relationship, we got to tear down those walls. we got to get flat. So we apologize. We get flat. And then we get clear. When this happens, it makes me feel uncomfortable, and I'm going to ask that you not do that again. Let me put it this way. I have no right to be frustrated with someone about violating a boundary that I have not clearly communicated. Well, they should just know. Know what? Well, they should know that hurts my feelings. I'm like making it obvious in how I behave. No, you're not. (laughs) Well, that's just a common human thing to do. Have you seen humanity lately? No. Get clear. Because we're so used to controlling through manipulation, getting clear means giving up dysfunctional power. We have to get clear. And then we got to hold the line. This is what I know. Relationships are built on habit, which means we, whoever, me and the person I'm frustrated with, have had a habit for weeks, months, years, decades, where the violation of boundaries is common. Which means this, we're going to apologize, we're going to get flat, we're going to get clear, it's going to happen again, because it's a habit. We don't know how to interact with each other unless we're doing that thing. And habits are hard to break. So my boundary is only as strong as my willingness to enforce it. If we say, I told them one time. Man, have you ever tried to like raise a dog? 
Like I tell my dog a bazillion times, they still do it, right? Like we have to be willing to continue. And this is the interesting thing. Holding the line is not about the person who violates your boundary. It's about me standing up for my wholeness and my fullness. So it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me. And, and there's people here in the room watching online. I'm with the band come up. We're going to wrap up in just a sec. And I feel the angst that you feel. Because we've made a decent, intellectually honest, like this is why boundaries are important. And we've taken a theological look at it. And yet deep down, this, this boundaryless living is so deeply ingrained in some of us that we're trying to spiritualize our hurt right now. Well, what about mercy? What about love? What about grace? What about concern for the other and love for the other? Absolutely. When it's from wholeness. When it's from fullness. Charity that starts with me needing to be needed is not a mirror of Jesus. It's a symbol of my broken humanity. When I was working through this in therapy, there were a couple people. My therapist is pushing, who are the people and what are the relationships? What are the things that you cannot envision Ed being whole if they were not in your life? And I, I, I could not bring myself to answer that question. And it hit me. My lack of boundaries at its core is a result of bad theology. Because I have come to believe that Jesus, the God, did not make me whole. That he made me broken. And we don't have spiritual evidence of that. We don't have biblical evidence of that. I mean, we can all quote the scriptures, I am fearfully and wonderfully made except for that one relationship where I'm really insecure. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you a future and a hope, except for this marriage I'm refusing to stand up for myself in. For you, God's workmanship created for good works that he had for you long ago. No, I, I don't wanna have to stand up for my wholeness. So here's the question. Fundamentally, we can, we can get practical about enforcing boundaries. We can get practical about why we live boundaryless lives. Here's the question. Do I really believe I am whole? That name that's pounding in your soul right now, that thing that if you thought about giving it up, that would feel like losing who you are, is worth it if it means I start experiencing God's love in its wholeness and its fullness. Came across this scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. I'm gonna read it in the message paraphrase because it's been so helpful to me. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, put you together spirit, soul, and body 
and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said he'll do it, he'll do it. What I've come to the realization is me being afraid of putting up boundaries and walking in my fullness and wholeness because I'm not sure if God's going to get my back. And yet, what we see scripturally is that God created us whole. And it's the lenses we put on throughout life that makes us come to believe that we're not. And God wants to return us to wholeness so we can really begin to be a mirror of his love and mercy to the world. So again, am I whole? Can you stand to your feet? As I was praying, Brittany and I were praying for this thought last night. And the thought that kept coming back to me Is, is two things. The first one is this. I believe there's people in the room right now that are full of shame and guilt, realizing that we've been playing victim for weeks, months, years, decades. And my, my hope this morning as we sing the song and as we worship is that you would begin to not feel guilt and shame, but hope. That in the midst of this realization and the accountability that comes with it, there is now hope that paired with God's grace, I can experience wholeness and fullness in my life. And the second one is this. I know there's people just like me. When I started this journey about three years ago, struggling with addiction, struggling with depression, defeated and discouraged, and not feeling whole, coming to the realization that that is a perspective I hold that is not theologically true. And so my prayer as we worship this morning is that people who are stuck in that belief would experience the fullness and the wholeness of God even for a moment. And it would start as a seed in our soul that we become adamant about watering so we can walk in the fullness and the wholeness of God's love for us and how he intended us to live. So can we posture ourselves this morning, whatever category you fall into, asking God as we sing and worship just for a moment, that he would open our eyes to his plans and his purposes that he has for us and his thoughts and his intentions towards us. And that we would begin to experience even just for a moment this morning as a seed, his wholeness and his fullness and his love and his care and his concern for us. Let's sing this morning.